0: Good evening. I apologize for last week's phone ringing while I was teaching. I've turned my phone to vibrate. Um, it was a phone call. It was a very important phone call, actually. It was a phone call from a, a pack of men that uh, that we've we've bind, bond, bonded and bonded together because we all have daughters. And uh, so he was telling me that there was a sale on car seats. It was it was actually a very good sale. It was um, Target.com. It had a misprint. I think he's calling me again. No, it's Tony this time. Um, Tony, Tony is not yet in this pack. But this 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 pack of men, we we've, we we all have daughters. That's our common thing. And we will um, we will severely hurt future boyfriends if our daughters get hurt. That that, that that's the meaning of our pack. So. Um, Hopefully, Tony, someday you'll be able to join. Um, let's pray. This has nothing to do with tonight's sermon. but we'll... God, thank you uh, for these people. And thank you um, for loving us, for giving us your word, and uh, giving us a, a remnant of, of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 7, we're going to be starting in verse 7 and going through verse 12. Last week, we talked about judging and how in the form of condemnation, it it doesn't work. And we also talked about pushing our pearls on others, uh, our pearls of wisdom or wanting them to change in some way and forcing them to do things that they really don't want to do and how that actually causes people to bite back. And if we turn to these or if we keep to these actions and, and to our agendas, we find that the reactions aren't what we hope for, what we desire from the other person. It usually leads to. Judgment in return, right? According to verse two, you you get judged back or a bite back, according to verse six. So something for us to consider is that if we are condemning others or if we're forcing others to conform to what we think is good, then perhaps their problem is not only their behavior or their actions, but their problem is also you and me. And if you and and I are a problem, that's something that we can actually control, right? We can choose to step away and not be in their face about, about it. Who here reacts positive, positively when, when someone's in your face? Anybody? Anybody? Just one. Some, just one abnormal person. Don't, don't you usually push someone away or, or move away from them when someone's in your face, right? You're like, get out of my face! right? So, so the best thing we can do when we sense we have this spirit of condemnation or desire to give... Something to someone when it actually isn't helpful to them is, is to simply step away. Right. And as we step away, we, we need to remain sensitive to that person's needs. And stepping away isn't necessarily saying, like, oh, I condone your actions now. It's just being more mindful, more tactful that being in somebody's grill is not going to go anywhere. Right. And we have to remember that we can't force them to change. We can't manipulate them into changing. And as we step away with this attitude of sensitivity and this attitude of non manipulation, then we can become an ally to them. We can become a friend to them rather than an enemy. And it allows the others other person's defensive posture to relax. They don't have to be on their heels against you, right, or on the balls of their feet. And, and all, the, all the walls they put up to protect themselves, they won't be there. And hopefully this leads to a more openness on their part, right? And they start to see that their problems are what they're actually dealing with. And it's not that you are their problem, that you're not the one that's right in their face, condemning them and, and trying to make them do something that they don't want to do. And instead of focusing on you, they can actually focus on their problem. And hopefully this is the beginning of real communication an authentic sharing of what is going on in their heart. And this this is what leads us into the the next, next illustration here, starting in verse seven. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. This verse is talking about the power of asking. See, there's power in asking for what we want from people and from God. An interesting thing is that this ask, seek, knock teaching, for the most part, it applies to our approach with others and not only to prayer to God. Look at the previous six verses and how they are addressing our actions with people, not with God. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't power in asking for things from God, nor am I saying that we shouldn't ask for things from God. I'm simply saying that oftentimes when when we see this verse, ask, seek, knock, people always directly go to God and that it's supposed to be we're always asking God or that we're always seeking God, that we're always knocking on God's door. But according to the previous six verses, it's talking about people interaction. I'm not saying it's not for God. I'm just saying that it's towards people. Okay. I'm simply saying that verse seven, based on the previous verses, show that ask, seek, knock teaching is primarily applied to our approach with others and not to prayer to God. So if we want to influence others, we aren't condemning them or forcing them, but it's simply asking them. We ask them to change. Right. And we, we look for ways to help them as they ask us. And we can continue to ask for changes as we are respectful to them before God and thoughtful and we're gracious towards them. To seek and you will find. It doesn't say hunt, right? You can't prey upon somebody and expect to find what we're looking for or hoping for. We need to be sensitive, not to scare people away. Otherwise, they'll hide from us. It says knock and it will be open to you. Notice it doesn't say bang, right? It will bang and it will be open to you. I don't think so. If you recall from last week's message, we're not to force others to do things we want them to do. It's not a wise thing to override someone's free will, their, their choice, because they'll resent you for doing that. And we're, we're simply to knock. And the latch of our hearts is on the inside of the door, right? And so now if we want to be able to enter that place with people, to enter their hearts, you can't force your way in. They won't unlock it for us if you force your way in. We, we can keep knocking. But it needs to be appropriate knocking, right? If someone comes to your door and knocks and, and, and you ask them not to come back, it's some solicitor or something, but they do. How does that make you feel? Then wouldn't you be like, um, I just told you not to knock on my door. I, I don't want your stuff, right? We have to be respectful of others' wishes. And notice these words. Ask, it's not demand. Seek, not hunt. Knock. Not bang. These are gentle words of action. They're not harsh words of action. So we need to approach people gently to ask them to seek, to knock, not demand, hunt, bang. And we are to be persistent in our hope of people as well as our faith in God. See, there's power in asking when we ask God to do things and it's in cooperation with him. Amazing things happen. But even in the asking, God won't violate the freedom and the dignity of, of a person's choices. And neither can we. Verse 8 For everyone who asks receives, and he who finds, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. Notice how by asking you receive, by seeking you find, and by knocking the door is open. And maybe not the first time, but if we're persistent in our gentle approach, then eventually these things happen. These things bring about unity. It, it allows for harmony in our community. And what does demanding, hunting and banging cause? Well, if you demand, you probably won't get much, if anything. Give that to me. Right? Excuse me? Shoo. And, and hunting, hunting will cause people to run and hide, right? Right? Who wants to be hunted down? You know, banging. Doesn't that just scare people? Wouldn't you just want to reinforce your door, shut, shut off the lights, call the police? Right? And so this hostile approach, it, would, it divides, right? And th- this causes dis- discourse in communities. So in relationships, there's this balance of asking and giving. If we become so imbalanced between what we give without someone asking, then, then it becomes obligation, And we start doing things out of obligation instead of what moved us to action. We start doing things out of pressure instead of passion. And we lose the heart that was leading us to action. And this is why God rarely just gives us what we need without being asked. He wants us to collaborate through prayer. He wants us to ask and respond to one another. Notice how Jesus moves from asking for what we want of others to asking for what we want from God. Verse nine, or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? There are two types of cause and effect. One of them is entirely under our control and the other one's not. The things under our control are in verse nine and ten. Or what man is there among you? If his son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. We can choose, right? We choose to either give bread or a stone. We choose if we want to give a fish or a serpent. We can operate within our will to act upon a request. We can choose to give our kid a piece of bread or a rock to chew on, right? And sane people will give something that's helpful to their kids, not harm their kids. Um... For example, I have a dog. I'm going to give you an example of uh, choices I can make. Joey is my 75 pound Labrador retriever, whom I love more than most people. And I I realize it's something I need to work on. And it's it's probably a sin issue in my life. I'm being honest with you. And I should probably seek counseling of it for putting my dog ahead of people. But anyway, I have this wonderful, beautiful, lovely, cuddly dog. But sometimes he stinks. And now when he stinks, it's probably best not to pray that he smells good, right? Oh, Lord, Joseph stinketh on high today. <laughs> Instead of having him smell like corn chips, can you make him smell like my baby? Right? So that's under my control, right? I, I can bathe him. If he stinks, I can choose to bathe him. If, if it's it's within my kingdom to take action on him, on him so that Joseph, thou shall not stinketh anymore in Albert's kingdom, right? So... <laughs> And then there there are things that aren't in our control. Verse 11. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to you, to those who ask Him? You and I can give good gifts to our kids, and we can control a lot of that. But what about those things out of our control? See, the things that are good, but, but not in our kingdom. And, and we can't choose them for people even though we want what is good for them. Things like overcoming addiction with alcohol or drugs or sex things like this aren't in our control these are are not just simply stinky dog problems right these are much deeper problems that need to be handled with prayer with God's intercession with God's hand with God's um, supernatural miraculous power and how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him ever notice that Jesus didn't fix Peter to keep him from denying him three times before he went to the cross? He could have, right? Jesus could have done that. He could have fixed Peter and said, "Uh, no, you're going to pray all night. And rather, Jesus worked with God to accomplish something in Peter after Jesus' death and resurrection. And we have to be like Jesus. We need to work with people on the things that only God can accomplish. So often we want to fix people. We want to rescue them from who they are. But there are many more things at stake than we can possibly realize when we're we're in, in these different situations, right? We need to recognize that there are bigger pictures involved in this and that life is more complicated than we can possibly know. Imagine if Jesus just fixed Peter. Would he be a leader in the church if he didn't learn from this denial which God brought him through? Which Jesus prayed for him for? Would he be able to have the conviction he ended up having if Jesus didn't allow him to go through that betrayal, probably not. So there are things that are out of our control that we need to bring to God in prayer. Issues so big that we can't possibly solve them on our own. Things like addictions, um, family and friends who had relationships with Jesus but no longer do, people who are unrepentant of of sin relationships with parents or children that are so fractured that a miracle needs to happen to repair them marriages that have no hope outside of God's intervention. And sometimes we can just wash the dog and other times we need to go to God to work on the hearts of our hearts and those those outside of uh, our control. And we need God to step into these dark circumstances and situations. And that that comes about with our prayers and God has allowed us the dignity to participate in this spiritual realm through prayer. He's allowed us to bring forward our petitions, our requests. And we need to keep in mind that God works, but it's not always based on our timing. We need to be persistently interceding and realize some of these things take time because God doesn't force his way into people's hearts. Prayer is a life of requests, but prayer is never just about asking. It's not just about what I want. God isn't our handyman, right? He doesn't just fix all of our problems. He's not our personal assistant who waits on us hand and foot, just waiting for things for our requests to go about and saying, like, okay, I'll fix that, right? The universe doesn't revolve around you and me, even though many of us think it does. And prayer is talking to God about what we are doing together. It's not about you and I singularly, but it's about us with God. A conversation between you and your daddy and, and a conversation between me and my daddy. And in that conversation we got, with God, we individually share our concerns and, and about things that matter to us while figuring out what God is concerned about in my life. Prayer is not just about praying about good things. If you want to have an ineffective prayer life, pray about things, even good things, that really don't matter to you. You know, there, there's a lot of good social issues out there to pray about. But if they don't matter to you, it doesn't have any effect. In order for prayer to be meaningful, it has to matter to us. The good things we are praying for have to mean something to us, and they have to be things we are honestly and truly and genuinely interested in. And just talking to God is not prayer, even though prayer does involve talking to God. And on the other hand, simply praising, as great great as it is to do to praise, praise is not praying. But your prayers won't be rich without hearts of praise. And Thanksgiving, which is right around the corner here, which we're going to celebrate, it's vital to prayer. But the purpose of Thanksgiving is not to give God a big head or to manipulate God, right? We're not trying to show God we're grateful and therefore he should give us more things. And even though I believe that prayer changes God, you're thinking, what? Did you say that God changes? Yes, he does. God's answers to our prayers are not a game. He doesn't have it all figured out for us and wait for us to catch up and, and just match up to what He wants, right? He's not just humoring us by answering our prayer when He's really just doing what He was going to do anyway. The requests that we make to God really make a difference in what God does and what God doesn't do. I'm going to give you two examples of this. The first one is in Exodus chapter 32. Remember the golden calf? So the Israelites are worshiping and and making sacrifices to this golden calf, and Moses goes up the hill and, and well Moses goes up the hill first and then they make the calf. And then God tells Moses, Hey man, you better get back down there. Those people are going cuckoo. Right? And so verse seven. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down Not dancing, like down the mountain. For for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and indeed it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And I will make you a great nation. And this is Moses prayer. Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of. I give to your descendants that they shall inherit it forever. And here's where the Lord changed his mind. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said to said he would do to his people. And there's a lot. There's also another example in second Kings, verse 20, where Hezekiah is told he's going to die. Isaiah says, hey, man, you're going to die. Get your stuff ready. Right. But but he prays to the Lord that he, his life would be extended. Second Kings, chapter 20, verse one. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, thus says the Lord, set your house in order for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, remember now, O Lord, I pray how I've walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and I've done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. It meant something to him, just like it meant something to Moses to pray for those people. And it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people. Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you and the city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend the city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. So prayer changes God. Just because God is all powerful doesn't mean that he's limited by the fact that he's all knowing. God's omnipotence isn't limited by his omniscience. If God doesn't want to know something, he doesn't have to. He's not forcing himself to know everything, right? Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, Then the Lord God called Adam and said to him, Where are you? God could have known. He could have known that. God could have left it up to Adam for him to let God know where he was. God can choose not to know everything or to choose to know everything. He's God. He can do that. And God would be a lesser God if he couldn't change his intention when he thinks it's appropriate to change. God isn't a theological system. He's not like this blank stare that just I've set everything in place and I'm going to be like this forever. He's able to be flexible while still being able to accomplish what he has set out to accomplish. And I'm not saying that he's changeable in identity. I'm not saying he's changeable in character. I'm not saying he's changeable in nature or the overarching purposes That he's laid out for us in prophecy. I'm not saying that those are changeable. Those are not changeable. I don't believe those things are changeable. But his intentions with respect to matters that relate to individuals can change. His relationship directly with Moses allowed things to change. His relationship directly with Isaiah and Hezekiah allowed directly things to change individually. And inflexibility is not something that God desires for us. Why would he want that for himself? I know that it's difficult to accept for those of who have those of us who have a classical theology of perfection where God is unmoved. He's an unmoved mover. That's it. That's the way it is. Where God must know everything, whether he wants to or not, who never changes his mind about what he's going to do, no matter how small those changes might be. But the God in the Bible is the most moved mover. God being a God of love, love is moved by our prayers. It's not a charade where he pretends to hear our prayers. He really hears our prayers. And our genuine, meaningful prayers, they matter to him. They can change God's mind about certain things. Extending a life. Killing a people. So I mentioned earlier that prayer is not just talking to God. It's not just praise. And it's not just thanksgiving. And sure, it's all of that stuff. But above all, prayer is a means of character formation. Prayer is where we can exercise our freedom, our power, while combining with our desire to serve, our desire to love people, right? And prayer is a primary means of character formation. We can choose and put forth effort to act with a heart of love, a heart of service. The person we choose to become is something no one else can offer God but you. It's something that we can only offer God individually. The person I've chosen to become can only be offered by me. I can't offer God my character for anyone else. I can't offer it for my daughters, nor can anyone offer it for me on my behalf. Jesus offers it so that we can have a relationship with God. But in, in terms of a character and who we've chosen to be, that's only something you and I can do individually. And this character formation it helps explain why prayer requires a lot of effort, a persistent effort that takes a lot of time because character development isn't developed overnight. Part of what God does with us to get us ready to reign with him is grow our character. Did you know God has plans for you to reign with him? Right. Looking back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, he gave that for stewardship for them, for them to reign in their in this kingdom of the Garden of Eden. So. We are in training to reign. And as our character grows, we become the kind of person who God God can entrust to empower. He is confident to let us do what we want to do because we've become closer to him. Our heart has been closer to him. And God's intention is for us to reign with him, for us to be free and powerful in his creation and govern it in such a way that the way we rule is good. The way we, we rule is the way that Jesus would rule. And when we pray, we are training for this reigning. And as we pray with God, we're learning how to reign. And oftentimes this training means we have to learn to wait. Sometimes we have to wait for God to do what we ask Him to do because the answers to our prayers involve changes in ourselves or other people. And these changes always take time. And prayer is a relation, a relationship. It's not a formula. It's not some mechanical contraption that spits out results based on how you ask for it. And when I was a kid, I was taught to pray first by asking for forgiveness of sins, then thanksgiving, and then Jesus' name. That's how I was taught. All good things, but it's not a formula. it, It was not a formula that I was given, right? Prayer is personal, it's relational to God. And as I grew older, I started getting more convinced that the way I was taught to pray was right. And I said, in Jesus' name after every sentence God, I want this in Jesus' name, and this in Jesus' name, and this in Jesus' name, and this in Jesus' name. Thinking that I can manipulate God into hearing my prayers a little bit better if I said, In Jesus' name. And I still believe God honored my prayers as a youngster because he's such a gracious God. But as I matured in faith and, and it dawned on me that this is a formula that I'm doing. Like I'm just kinda I'm guilty of the same thing that, that the Jewish guys were in terms of repetitiveness and just like repeating things. It, because it wasn't personal and it wasn't relational. It was very mechanical. And prayer is not to be that way. So what is the answer to the need we have to influence others for good? It's prayer. Asking God. It's the only sure way that the good we can expect from others is achieved. Which brings us to verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want men to do, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. The word therefore is at the beginning of this verse, which brings us to a question. What is it therefore? Right. We've already established the power of prayer to accomplish the good we desire of others and how condemnation and manipulation doesn't work. So in verse 12, it says, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. In other words, because of the power of asking and praying, treat others as you would like to be treated. For this is the law and the prophets, meaning this is God's revealed will and what he requires of us. And notice something back in in Matthew, chapter five, verse 17, where Jesus says, do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And then after that statement, Jesus talks about what's at the heart of the law and the prophets. He talks about treating people right and honoring community. And Jesus shows us that by mistreating people and dishonoring community, we face serious consequence, consequences with God. He says that if we judge others, we'll be judged. Jesus says that if we don't forgive others their sins, then God won't forgive us our sins. He says, if we're filled with contempt for people and call them fool, we're in danger of hell. And Jesus says all of these teachings of the law and prophets point to this. And it's because God loves people. So when anyone mistreats people, it angers him. And so after everything Jesus talks about from chapter 5, verse 17, all the way till now, chapter 7, verse 12, is summed up in this most famous verse. Actually, it's the second most famous verse after judge not that you not be judged. That's the first most famous verse. But everyone knows this verse, right? Everyone knows the golden rule verse. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. And verse 12 ends with, for this is the law and the prophets. It's as if all this stuff is sandwiched in between chapter 5, verse 17, chapter 7, verse 12, all this stuff. This is the golden rule. It's not just a nice saying. It's central to what Jesus is saying. Jesus is very concerned about how people have turned the law and the prophets into legalism and a superficial behavior so that they thought they were pleasing God, but they really weren't loving people. They missed the whole point. So Jesus says, do not think I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Then he gives the most brilliant teaching in all of human history about how to deal with anger. With our words, with our sexuality, with our things and money, with being judgmental and so forth. Then Jesus comes to the end of all this and he says, Now I want to summarize what I've said to you in one sentence that you guys can remember on this hill. This is a summary of all the law and the prophets. Think of all the ways you hope for others to treat you. Now, that's it. You treat other people the same way. The golden rule is about how life works in the kingdom. The kingdom. Jesus made the kingdom available to us through his person, his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection. And this is what it looks like. And the golden rule summarizes what all the law and the prophets are all about. Think about how you want to be treated as you come to know and love and follow God. Think about how you want others to treat you to help you become that kind of a person. And now you do that for other people. And the cool thing about the golden rule is, is that it's always a golden rule moment. Every situation you find yourself in life, every moment in time, every place we find ourselves, any job we work at, any interaction we have with someone is a golden rule moment. And the great thing is that it's not dependent on how smart you are, how much money you have, what kind of job you have or what you possess. It's actually better not to possess those things because most of the time those things get in the way because they make us think that our lives are about us. And they keep us, ask, keep us from asking, what would I want if I was in this other person's shoes? And in asking that question, we often have to use our imagination. We have to use our creativity. And when we look at our community, we have to put ourselves in their shoes and ask what we would be in need of if we were in their shoes. And I think that it's where we kind of miss the point when we do ministry. We often go about ministry and we think about what's necessary without finding out what the needs are by simply talking to people. We think we know we, we cater ministries and, and we think and we plan out everything without doing any research. What company ever does that? I see a need. And so we'll just create this product and, um, and get it out there. And then no one buys it. No, they do a ton of research before they go out there. Right. They, they find out what people need. And they they fill that need. And we need to talk to people. We need to take initiative to meet people in their need. To find out what their hopes are, what their dreams are for their life, for their children. To find out what their fears are, how they want to be treated. And as we find these things out about people, we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. We need to get dirty with those people out there. We can't just think that they need this or they need that. People right across the street or in our neighborhood, we need to talk to them. Not for us to talk about ourselves, but to focus on the person we've been finding out more about. Ask the Holy Spirit how you're treating that person and how we as a community are treating that person. And as we look at others with the golden rule in mind, we'll end up with more love, more joy, more friendships as we organically live our life. Just like Jesus. As he lived his life, he saw he saw situations and he just ministered into those situations. He asked questions of people, right? Right. Whereby putting ourselves last, we end up first. By making ourselves servants of all, we end up the greatest of all. And not that that's that's what we're trying to do, trying to manipulate a situation so that we end up first or that we end up the greatest. But because we realize who Jesus is, the person who directs us to himself on how to live. If there are any questions on how to live your life by the golden rule, look at Jesus. That's all you got to do. Look at Jesus. Look at his life. Look at his death on the cross. Look at his resurrection. Ministry is not a mechanical thing, just like prayer isn't. It's not a formula. What works here in Oakland is not necessarily going to work somewhere else. Or what works somewhere else isn't necessarily going to work here. It looks different moment by moment. And as we live our life of ministry, it changes. So let's think about the people we're going to meet. Let's think about the communities in our lives that we're currently involved in and make a decision right now to live each moment of your life with the golden rule in mind. Ask the Holy Spirit to remind you and keep you aware of what's happening around you. The only thing that makes it possible for us to treat others as they should be treated is a confidence in God. Without that trust in God, we mistreat people. We violate community. And if we don't have others in mind and our communities in mind, why is that? Why not? We need to find out what's going on in our heart that makes us mistreat others and and disturb community. Because when we do that, God isn't happy about it. He isn't happy about indifference either. Sitting idle and doing nothing is not serving the needs of others, nor is it contributing to community. And I think this is the biggest problem we have at the church. very quiet in here jesus invites us to a golden rule of life right to do to others what we want if we were in need if we were sick if we we needed help do you want the other person to treat you like you didn't exist how is that a golden rule that is not an assertive goodness right How can sitting idle be possibly what you would want someone to do for you if you were hurting, if you were in need, if you just needed someone to talk to, if you just needed a little financial boost to to give your kids a little Christmas gift or if you if your marriages were suffering, that someone would come beside you and say, you know, I'm going to pray for you or do you guys need some counseling? Maybe we can direct you to somebody. It takes some effort, some initiative to get something done. You can't just sit back and do nothing. To live in such a way that we need to deal with how we are in our hearts because this is really telling of how we're going to interact with others and live in community. We have to see what's happening in our hearts. Why aren't we living the golden rule if we aren't? If we are, great. Keep doing it. But if you aren't, why not? And we lose our focus on others so easily because we're usually concerned with how we're treated. Right? How, how we expect things, how we want things, or how things are inconvenient to us. And we need to have the eyes of Jesus, eyes of love to see others the way that He sees them. And we can be so much more effective in our communities if we would be honest before God to show us how we can love others the way that He desires they be loved. Let's pray. God, I ask for your equipping for us to do something. I find it really hard to believe that if we were put in the shoes of someone who was abused or someone who was really hurting, someone in need, someone in a very unhealthy state, that we would want someone else to just stand by and do nothing and ignore the hurts in our lives. And Jesus, I I don't think that you did that. God, I ask that you would help us to see clearly the needs of people ask, God, that you would uh, give us the courage to do something if we're not. And to fully live in the kingdom as as though uh, you are training us for reigning. And as we pray, Lord, um, there are some things that only you can do that require uh, your supernatural touch to intervene. And there are other things that we can do that just simply can be done. That if we see a simple need, that we can actually do that. And for those things, we ask God that you would convict us to be people of action. And for those things out of our control, that we would um, make those things matter to us as we approach you in prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.